right. Good morning, everybody. Hey, am I on? Can you hear me? Yep, I don't think so. Am I on? I'm going to keep talking until I come on. Everybody good? No? Let's see. Let's see if that's on mine. I don't think it's on mine. We good back there? Check one. There we go. I hear it now. All right. I'm digging this temperature you guys have in the South. It was 18 in Canada yesterday, a blustery 18, I must say. Uh, so I'm enjoying. I thought about wearing shorts this morning, but I figured that would not uh, uh, go well. Uh, my name's Matt, one of the pastors here, and uh, really glad to be back in Philippians 2 with you. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, if you would open it to Philippians 2. Um, and again, we're going to be there until the new year, so you can go ahead and uh, dog ear that page or put you a bookmark or do whatever you need to do uh, to, uh, to turn your attention there uh, each week. Philippians 2, we're going to focus on uh, verses 6 and then the transition into uh, verse 7. And if you've got a notebook uh, or if you're sitting next to some kids and want them to kind of help follow along, if you get out a kind of blank page or your phone, your notes app, that'll even kind of help you kind of organize what we're going to do this morning so you have some talking points at home or in your small group uh, communities this week. So Philippians 2 verses 6 and 7 uh, will be our primary text. And uh, by way of introduction, think with me for a minute about uh, kind of organizational structures for life. I would suggest that everyone, all of you, uh, have some way of making sense of processing the decisions that you make. And much like making your morning pot of coffee, most of the time this is kind of out of sight, out of mind. It's unconscious for you, how you choose and organize life until you show up in a college uh, philosophy class or sociology class, and then you get to learn all the isms that accompany these uh, ways, these organizing modes. But if, if we think about how we go about making decisions, we could boil the essence, kind of two fundamental ways of living, uh, down, down really to, to two big themes. The most common and the most basic could be summarized simply as hedonism. And we would say hedonism is simply this. I do what I want when I want to. I do what I want when I want to. This is teenage angst writ large. And it is commonsensical for us, apart from the saving grace and knowledge of Jesus, that this seems to make sense as to how I'm going to get the most out of life. I look out for me and prioritize my happiness, my pleasure, my passions above all else. And the more I get, the more I'm able to indulge in those pleasures. Thus, my fulfillment in life increases. Paul's challenge in Philippians 2 is a full-on assault to hedonism. Notice in verse 6, actually, I'm sorry, back up in verse 3, he doesn't name it as such, but he calls out this approach to life. And he writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. In fact, his call in Philippians 2 verses 1 through 4 is the exact opposite way of approaching life and making decisions. Rather than doing what I want when I want it, what if the best way to live is to die to yourself and to do what's in the best interest of others. This is what Paul is holding out for us. And friends, it is a counterintuitive call. We're going to need the grace of God to be able to do what is not going to come naturally to any of us. And so, once again, he turns our attention 
to Jesus. I'm going to read in verses 5 going into the introduction to verse 7. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. We'll stop there this week. Last week, I considered the idea that Jesus was in the form of God. And at its essence, in that sermon, I tried to communicate that he's in the form of God, meaning he's eternal and he's equal. His essence is God. He is fully God. And this week, we've got three parts to consider. And this is where on your notes, I think you could maybe just kind of jot these ideas down uh, because this will be the major frame of the sermon. We'll consider what does it mean that Jesus was uh, equal with God first? Second idea, what does it mean that he didn't consider that equality something to be exploited? So if you're writing just Jesus is equal with God, Idea number two, Jesus didn't consider that equality something to be exploited. Then idea number three, instead he emptied himself. Instead he emptied himself. Now we're trying to do something that's a little bit delicate because there's a tight interconnection between the phrases. Obviously we're, we're in a paragraph, we're in a unit of thought. So though he was in the form of God, is going to directly relate to these ideas that we're going to consider this week. He's equal with God. He didn't consider that equality something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. So big idea, number one, Jesus is equal with God. We mentioned, as I told you to consider last week, one idea connected to this equality is that he's he's eternal. He is and will always be God. It might be helpful for you, a bit of reflection and some other pastoral conversation, to to even consider applying the name Jesus to the the Son of God's earthly ministry. This eternality of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, entering human form was given the name Jesus. So it may be a bit unhelpful to think Jesus is eternal. It may be a bit more helpful to think the Son of God, or John uses the term, the Word is eternal, and that Word takes on flesh and is named Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, though, is eternal and equal with God. What what does equality mean for the Son? I want to consider three forms that Jesus' equality took. First, he was equal with God in his possessions. He was equal with God in his possessions. I'll attempt to provide a bit of a definition here to help you consider the scope of this claim. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had all he ever wanted at his disposal all of the time. All he ever wanted at his disposal all of the time. This famous text from Psalm 50 helps to capture this notion. The psalmist writes, Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens, for every animal in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. 
If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and everything in it is mine. The Old Testament picture of King Solomon is probably the closest approximation of this. The one who asked God for wisdom and as a result was given everything else. And as you read the Old Testament history books, you get this testimony of one who had everything. Such that the rulers of the nations around were coming to see King Solomon and his amassed wealth. One who had everything. Secondly, Jesus was equal, Son of God was equal in his power. The Son could do anything he wanted, whenever he wanted. Now let's put these ideas together. They're going to build a case for us. He had all he ever wanted at his disposal all the time, possessions, power. He could do anything he wanted, whenever he wanted Consider the psalmist writing in Psalm 115. Not to us, Lord, not to us. But to your name give glory, because you are the faithful one, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, 5 and 6. For I know the Lord is great. The Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. God can do whatever he wants. Likely the closest parallel we have is actually one who leverages that power to be a malevolent dictator. Lords over people, exercises power in such a way that executes, right? Here, it's applied positively to God. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to. And then lastly, he was equal with God in position. He was rightfully deserving of honor and praise from all people everywhere. Again, let's build our case. He had all he ever wanted at his disposal all of the time. And you should be thinking, dude, that sounds awesome. Right? Because this is the impulse of hedonism. I have all I ever want at my disposal all the time. That sounds really great. Add to that, I can do anything I want whenever I want to. And then positionally, rightfully deserving of the honor and praise from all people everywhere. Psalm 113, 4 through 6. The Lord is exalted above the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one enthroned on high? The one who, and here the Babel picture, the one who stoops down, to look on the heavens and on the earth. Here again, we we don't have an earthly approximation to this. Maybe the closest you get is a king, a position of authority that's rightfully deserving of honor, respect, but even that falls short because not all kings possess character. They're not holy kings. So even though they have positional authority, they're not rightfully deserving, perhaps, But here we have one who is rightfully deserving of honor and praise from all people everywhere. So, Jesus is equal with God. Positions, power, and position. What did he do? Secondly, Jesus made up his mind to not exploit this equality. 
This is what Paul says in verse 6. He did not consider, so there I'm substituting the language of made up his mind, did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited. So right now in the college football world, you hear discussion consistently about the college football coaching carousel, right? It's funny language. The football coach who garners the attention of other schools and uh, as a result decides to take a job perhaps across the country in another program. And the consistent question is, why would he leave that? He's got something good. Why would he leave something good to go take something else? And then you hear about the $95 million contract and the house and the private jet, and you say, I know why he left that. Friends, you can't do that with Jesus. You can't do a, oh, that makes sense equation with this decision. Jesus made up his mind to not exploit this equality. Now, here your Bible translators are going to stumble a bit. They're not going to stumble because they're not smart enough to translate the terms, but they're going to stumble because we don't really have the, the best English approximation to this, to this idea. So your translators are going to do different things here. You'll see a few of those here. That he didn't consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. Didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. I like the last one, at least because it gives me a vivid word picture. Didn't consider equality with God something to be held onto at all cost. You might think the thief who breaks into the house and steals and says, I'm going to take everything. You can have everything but fill in the blank. That's this idea. Everything but this. It's the thing I'm going to hold on to at all costs. The thing I'm unwilling to give up. And here Paul says, Jesus made up his not mind to not exploit, to not take advantage of, this equality, not hold on to it at all cost. This, friends, is really counter in a hedonistic world. I do what I want when I want means if I have possessions and power and position, I can fan the flames of my hedonism to the max. To have more allows me to be able to do more. And a grade school child doing whatever he wants whenever she wants it uh, may not be that problematic. There's not much to exploit at that point. But a successful businessman, on the other hand, can use his power to fan the flames of hedonism in some ways that are really destructive. He can exploit that. Jesus had everything. But he chose not to exploit that so that others could be blessed. And, and I'll get here in just a minute, but let me tease the application. This is the same decision that confronts you and I. You don't have everything, but you do have something. And the choice that lies before us in light of Philippians 2, 1 through 4, is to choose to not exploit what we have so that others can be blessed. So what did Jesus do then, idea number three? You might think, the connection between idea number two and idea number three is idea number two is mental. He didn't consider this something to be exploited, 
But then he did something. It's hands and feet. It's tangible. He emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? Well, let's think back through our three categories. He emptied himself of possessions. Remember the beautiful picture Paul paints in 2 Corinthians 8 when he's exhorting the church to be generous in their giving? In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he writes this, For you know of the grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The celebration of Christmas, the incarnation, spells this out for us in vivid detail. The one who had all possessions couldn't even find a, an end to be born into, a baby in a manger, being acknowledged by just a few random individuals. Even in his earthly ministry, Matthew 8, 20, he's going to picture this, that the Son of Man did not even have a place to, to lay his, his head. The one who was the rightful possessor of palaces and kingdoms chose to be an itinerant minister, dependent on the benevolence of those the villages that he would stumble into. He emptied himself of power. Now, we have to be comfortable with a bit of tension here as we think about Jesus' power. Because there's no question that Jesus demonstrated the eternality of his power on many occasions. Being able to speak to a storm and it cease, for example. Being able to heal diseases with a word. His power was on display, but there is no question that during his earthly ministry, that power was restrained. It wasn't manifest in its fullness. Consider Matthew 26, summarizing the scene leading up to the crucifixion. They took hold of Jesus and they arrested him. And at moments, one of those who were with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high, servant's, uh, the high priest's servant cut off his ear. Jesus said, put your sword back in its place because all who perish with the sword or all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? Then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? They say that it must happen this way. Let's see. Restraint and power. I could flex but I'm not here. And then position. This is perhaps the easiest one to see. Jesus emptied himself of his position. I think the John 13 scene gives us a vivid picture of this. You remember the scene, right? The Lord Jesus Christ taking a towel and washing the feet of his disciples, including that of Judas taking the form, as we'll see in Philippians 2 in just a moment, of a servant. The one, again, remember, idea number one, who is rightfully deserving of honor and worship from all people everywhere, empties himself of that and takes the form of a servant. 
What's important for us to consider here is that in no time throughout this process did Jesus lose his possessions, power, position. He willingly laid them aside. He willingly emptied himself. And what's critically important is the subject that's at play here. Notice, we're not going to go English class here, but this is just really basic. Paul writes, he emptied himself. This would come off way differently if the text read, he was emptied. As if some outside force was acting upon Jesus that was causing him to do this. Well, it would lose the force of application for us because then I couldn't exhort you to do the same thing because there would have to be some outside force that's acting upon you to cause us. But here, Jesus is making a choice that's leading through his hands and feet to do something. He's emptying himself. In fact, in John 10, he describes his death that way. This is why the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I've received this command from my Father. So who killed Jesus? What a very real way. Nobody. Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. He emptied himself which then leaves the landing pad for us. Idea number four. Since Jesus did this, you should follow his example. Since Jesus did this, you should follow his example. Let's just very quickly work back through the paradigm. First, we acknowledge that we have some level of positions and power and position. Now, I get there's all sorts of cultural stereotypes attached to that. Even the language of privilege these days denotes sets off all kinds of warning flags. Not what I'm talking about. This is not a factor of race or a sociological principle of privilege, but it is the required orientation of those who follow Jesus to acknowledge the blessings that they have received and be willing to live open-handedly for the sake of others. And that begins by saying, what do I have? If I'm going to follow the example of Jesus, then I have to acknowledge that I have some possessions, I have some power, and I have some position that is at my disposal. I'm not equal with God, but I have gifts from God. And we could, at this point, you know, press pause and do the stat line about the relative affluence of every person sitting in this room. We could consider the relative positional authority of everyone in this room. We could consider the power that's demonstrated in this room. Stat lines probably won't seal the deal for you. But what is important is that you consider the circle Though the relative size of that circle may differ, but there are places where your voice matters. There are some people you exercise influence over, and there are some possessions at your disposal. And in light of that, you have really two choices. To invest those hedonistically, to fan the flames of doing what you want when you want, or to follow the example of Jesus, not exploit them, 
but give them so that others are blessed. And that's idea number two. We make up our mind to not exploit the things that are at our disposal. We intentionally loosen our grip on the things of this earth. This is Romans 12 idea. How are we transformed? Transformed fundamentally by the renewal of our minds. And that then leads to the activity us offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. Look back in Philippians 2 earlier, in verses 3 through 4, he does the same, same thing when he says, consider others more important than yourselves. What's consider? Consider is mental before it's active. It's I am actually thinking you are more important than me. I am thinking what I have at my disposal is for your blessedness, not my happiness. We'll never apply humility to our hands and feet if we don't first apply it to our minds. We'll never act like others are more important than us until we actually start to think that they are. This mental shift will require a lifetime of sanctification, so you better get to work now. And then lastly, we willingly choose to empty ourselves. We willingly choose to do the actions that would be demonstrative of the fact that I actually think you're more important than me. That I actually think what is mine is for your blessedness, not my happiness. So then we can come to the end, Philippians 2.17. We'll get this verse in just a moment. How does Paul describe, he's in prison at this point, how does he describe the end? I'm finishing the race, verse 17, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, a sacrificial service of your faith. I'm glad, and I rejoice with all of you. How about that? Paul gets to the end, and he says, I'm poured out. I've emptied it all. And in light of that, I found rejoicing. This is the most counterintuitive reality of Philippians. You'll never find fullness and joy if you are the most important person in your own world. You never will. So, I think believer and non-believer alike in the room this morning, we have an impulse that we want fullness and joy. You want to get to there? The path to get there is to follow the example of Jesus, to consider others as more important than yourselves, to live for their blessedness, not your happiness. And in a counterintuitive way, God creates culture, he creates churches, he creates small groups, he creates families that are living for the sake of others. And friends, you know this to be true. I would surmise that the happiest moments of your life are when you've poured yourself out for the sake of others, not when your needs have been met. There's something icky, even, about when our needs are pampered. But where do you find fullness and joy? You give. So this morning, we're going to conclude. I'm going to invite the band to come on up and join me. And I want you to reflect, what a season to do that, to live for the sake of others.
We have the memorial this morning for us in the Lord's Supper that reminds us of the one who emptied himself, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited, whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out of his own initiative. We're going to do a bit differently this morning. The servers can come down front now. They're going to begin to distribute the elements. And as they do, we're going to reflect through song. Song I think we introduced um, last year uh, that the words communicate. they got a kind of a twist on a familiar lyric for us that help us to reflect on the undue kindness that we've received from Jesus. Then after we reflect in this song, uh, I'll come back and we'll read the words of the Lord's Supper together. We'll take the meal as a group. So you can just hold the elements, reflect on the desire to empty yourself, maybe repent of selfishness, and then we will uh, take the elements together here in just a moment. Walker, come lead us.